This episode is brought to you by The Growth Strategy Programme, the only online programme for the founders of scaling consumer packaged goods brands that helps you set your business up for the next phase of serious growth. To find out when the next cohort starts, go to fionafitzconsulting.com, then click online courses and register your interest today. Welcome to Brand Growth Heroes, the podcast that explores how insurgent brands in consumer goods categories are driving transformational growth. Here our guests talk not only about their brand purpose or why, but also how where they play, who they employ, and how they work has driven their incredible success. Have you ever asked yourself if you should try to become a cross-category brand, or whether you should just simply focus on one product format or category? And have you ever wished that you could afford to use the highest quality ingredients in your products, those that you imagined you'd be using when you set out on this journey, yet that you'd still be able to encourage millions of people to buy your products, even though they had to cost a lot more than the traditional alternatives? What about wishing that you could create a truly engaged tribe of followers, so passionate about what you're doing that they hang out with you in an online group, sharing recipes, hacks, and even, as a nice upside, buying more of your products? This is the stuff of dreams, people! And after 25 years in consumer packaged goods, I can tell you that it's not just startups or scaling brands who are wondering how to achieve some of these dream scenarios. It's big grocery brands too. Well, watch out big grocery brands because we've got another insurgent brand with heaps of growth potential coming right at you. Hunter & Gather is a cross-category lifestyle food and supplement brand that is already achieving gross sales value of nearly £6 million. A whopping 70% of this is achieved online, so they have huge headroom in retail grocery. In this episode, clever and passionate founders Amy Mooring and Jeff Webster offer us a world-class case study on consumer targeting. If you find a group of people who have a higher order need such as health, and there's no other solution out there that satisfies this need, then they'll pay what your products are actually worth. This new paradigm changes the rules that the food and drinks industry has used for 40 to 50 years. It's no longer just the richest consumers who will choose to pay more for a product that's worth more. We talk half-truths from big food, charging 14 quid for a jar of mayonnaise, lost ancestral wisdom, and why Hunter & Gather is not a vegan brand. Amy and Jeff of Hunter & Gather, welcome to Brand Growth Heroes. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Super excited to be here. Thank you so much for having us. So listen, tell us about Hunter and Gather. What kind of company are you? What products do you sell across which categories? And where do you sell most of your products? Because I have to say, when I was trying to work out how I was going to describe you guys, I didn't know where to start. So help me out here. (laughs) So the name gives a little bit of a nod. So we're an ancestrally inspired lifestyle brand with optimal health products for every day. So we span across food and supplements with an overarching kind of promise that we are free from refined sugars, grains, and inflammatory seed or vegetable oils. So you'll find us cross category. So we're available in condiments, oils, supplements, dressings, um, and we're gradually taking over more and more categories by optimizing them from a health perspective. Um, In terms of where we sell, we're an omni-channel business. So we are around 70% online 
online, however, at the moment. But we do work in retail. We've got a Cardo, Whole Foods Market, lots of health stores, farm shops even, and delis. So um, we're gradually spreading, but our kind of core sort of focus of the business is that e-commerce up to date. Okay. And your business is actually a lot bigger than I had imagined. What kind of figure can you share with us to give our listeners an idea of how big you are and how long it took you to get to that size? Yeah. So we started at the end of 2017. So October 2017. Um, We were triple digit growth for the first couple of years. um, And we're just about to finalise our financial year at the end of January. And we're in the kind of growth phase now where in the next year we're targeting 5.5 million in in GSV. Um, And we've got strong growth ambitions to turn that into double digit million. So 10, 20 million in the next two to three years as well. So 5.5 million and 70% of that or so is online. I mean, that's a huge business. And how is that split online? Is it mainly DTC or Amazon or, you know, when I say DTC, I mean your own business. How does that split? Yeah, for sure. So it's roughly 40% of that is on um, on Amazon and about 30 to 35% is D2C. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's quite a rough split. And for the year ahead, um, we're hoping D2C is going to catch up with Amazon and yeah, there'll be level pegging for the year to come. How many SKUs do you have? And the reason I'm asking that question is it, it must be really difficult to manage so many SKUs online, appealing to so many different types of people for so many different use cases. Or do you find that you appeal to the same consumers? Who are you talking to and what do they use you for? And which SKUs appeal to who? Sorry, that's a really roundabout way of asking the question, but you know where I'm coming from. <laughs> Yeah, so we've got our core tribe. And when we talk about the core tribe, there are people that have either had ailments or suffering with arthritis, stomach challenges, and they're following a certain lifestyle or dietary requirement. They get us instantly and we'll be looking for the whole range of products that we offer. Um, We do, however, have other people now that are shopping um, into Hunter & Gather because they're looking for healthier options. They want to trust the brand. They want to ensure that it's the best possible quality, as well as environmentally friendly, plastic-free packaging, for example, on our collagen. So someone that's looking for a protein, clean protein source, could come to us through our collagen supplementation, and then they get into the brand ethos of that actually each category that we operate in, we are about quality, the transparency, and being the most health optimizing in that category. Um, so we generally find, and um, being a, obviously a, a strong on D2C, we can get a lot of data from that. And we do find that people cross-purchase the brands. They may come in for collagen, but they actually end up shopping across dressings, mayos and oils as well. Because most households in the UK, I think it's over 90% of households use mayo in, in their house. So a lot of people looking for healthier options So is that the way people find you or do they come in through collagen? And why do I have this idea that people who buy into a brand called Hunter and Gather are kind of like CrossFitters or keto people? Is that a a myth that I have in my head? So yes, Hunter and Gather gives a nod to that ancestral philosophy, but actually we're about bringing back lost generational wisdom as well. So what our grandparents would have shared. And Hunter and Gather actually comes from our 
personal line. So um, Hunt is my grandparents' name and Jeff is from a line of Gavagood. So that's why it's not Hunter, Gatherer, as it should be. It's Hunter and Gather, which can, can trip a few people up. But yes, so we was um, inspired by the ancestral lifestyle, such as keto, paleo, carnivore even. Um, however, what we're seeing is that we're more of a health halo. So those core principles of those lifestyles, yes. And and people that are keto or paleo know us. They get us straight, straight away. away yeah. um, but because we fit so many other pointers, such as our mayo being dairy-free, everything's gluten and grain-free, we're actually seeing that we have low FODMAP people, we have gluten-free, we have people with immune protocols that they need to follow it'd be fair so, to say the crossfitters for instance are those real early adopters mm-hmm. um and you know crossfit is is hugely popular now worldwide you don't hear so much about it anymore because it is becoming such a mainstream kind of hobby yeah. or sport um but yeah it would be fair to say people that do crossfit keto paleo they automatically get us and we benefited for for two or three years of people just knowing the language you were speaking um, but but yeah, now we are reaching more of a mass market audience. So what I'm wondering is when you started marketing this brand, did you look for people like you who were more looking for non-inflammatory, non-intolerance type stuff? Or was it the keto people and the CrossFitters? Who did you go out looking for when you started out? In short, like Jeff and I are from working class background. We started Hunter and Gavo as a passion project for, for ourselves. We were our core consumer, actually, and our needs weren't being met within the UK. Um, we was shipping over products from the US and just thought, surely there must be other people out there. But this was before the days, actually, of many of the keto Facebook groups for the UK, et cetera. And there just wasn't this body of guidance or um, knowledge anywhere. So what needs did you have that weren't being answered in the mainstream that you needed to ship products in from abroad? Yeah, so for me, 2012 was a turning point for me. Um, I I spoke to a a physio who works with Team GB athletes and he essentially said to me, Jeff, to fuel yourself for your athletic endeavours, you don't need to be consuming these ultra-processed carbohydrates. And I thought that was absolutely bonkers. Cut long story short, he showed me a video and it just made total sense. And it was based more around kind of a low-carb paleo template. And people think this is, you know, kind of are really far out there or it's not based in any kind of um, any science, but in fact it is. And when I started removing grains, sugars and seed oils, which are like hyper-processed oils such as rapeseed oil or sunflower oil, it leaves a lack of options that you can go into the supermarket to essentially purchase things like mayonnaise or, or tomato sauce or dressings, etc. So that was a need for us. And when we launched Hunt and Gather, it was really from a position of pure naivety and it was it was oh i wonder if that as amy said i wonder if there are other other people here in the uk the, the communities around keto and paleo and low carb and just ancestral living was nowhere near what it is now like four years later there was nobody there was a paleo group of about 500 people in it so were you buying these products because of your athletic endeavors then rather than your digestional endeavors Jeff was understanding from his side um, how food had impacted him. And he did have 
gastro issues with wheat-based cereals and lots of protein shakes and things like that. For me, I'm a lifelong celiac. So I had seen the gluten-free aisles come around and the added sugars and added chemical preservatives. And I would be reading the back of the pack. And for me personally, I had a lack of trust in a lot of food businesses that there wasn't a true... um, there wasn't a true face behind them. There was a lot of um, cutting corners with costs and, and things like that. And it felt like that the ingredients were going from natural products to really long lists that I couldn't understand. And for me as a consumer, I was coming from the free from perspective versus the necessarily the health initially, but actually the kind of two sides of Jeff and I have come together in the fundamentals of Hunter and Gather. Talk just a little bit about the types of choices you guys make then when you are putting together your products. What kind of choices do you make about ingredients? What does real food mean for you guys? Because lots of companies talk about real food, but I know that it means something very different to you. Yeah, absolutely. So we are as anal as it comes when it's uh, when it comes to looking at ingredients. And what a lot of people don't know is that Food can have processing aids that are undeclared on the label. And there's a lot of things that aren't actually put on the finished label. So if you're scared of what the ingredients are that you can actually see, there may be a lot of others that aren't declared. Can you give us an example? Because I think that's really worth like us educating some of the listeners on this. Let's give some examples of processing aids that you would never imagine are used in products, but you don't have to put in the back of a label. Yeah, absolutely. So when we was looking to create our mayonnaise product, our first product. And to um, scale it up. And to scale it up because um, we couldn't make it all at home, especially the scale we are now. Um, We have a manufacturer and with that manufacturer, we went to them with an idea of a recipe and their default was powdered eggs to use in the product. Now, um, and by the way, that hasn't got to even be declared on the back of pack that it's come from powdered eggs. As long as you reconstitute it with water, it's just declared as egg yolk. Yes. You'll see in a lot of a lot of mayonnaise, it will say just egg yolk. Um, you don't know if it's powdered. And if it's in a powdered format, a processing aid is used, which is an anti-caking agent. So it stops it kind of clumping together. And you can get um, silicon dioxides that are added. And these aren't declared. So it would just say egg or egg yolk because it falls below a certain percentage but we're saying hey that's not good enough guys yeah we want to be as transparent as well we want to be transparent so let's not hide that sort of stuff so we tasked our manufacturer of saying hey we want to be using free range liquid egg yolk from a single source in cornwall like we're not happy we're not willing to compromise on this and we can see that it will scale up this brand sell their range of eggs into supermarkets this is possible okay, sorry, it's going to be logistically a little bit more challenging because it needs to go into the fridge and it takes up a bit of space and the cardboard box doesn't stack very well in a, in a, you know, in a shed for five years like powder legs does. But those are kind of the, the compromises we're not willing to make. Is your co-manufacturer now the same co-manufacturer you started out with? Yep. They must love you. <laughs> <laughs> they do. We've gone yeah. from a very, very small customer of theirs to in the top three. And, and that's been 
Yeah. Uh, I think we bring a bit of fun to the development chef side as well. Like we work with them on a lot of new recipes as well. And I think we actually bring a lot of new ingredients that maybe they've not thought of using before. That's uh, like a lot of gums they utilize and, and, and we provide different options or solutions because of our knowledge of the the industry of the keto paleo lifestyle. We We have other ingredients that we recommend. So another thing to mention as well is that we've come across a lot of products, even in the keto or paleo space, that we know have used seed oils in the process of being made. And it's undeclared on the label or even sugar like uh, multidextrin and things like that in MCT powders. So we actually won't, with our promise of no seed oils, no grains and um, no refined sugars, um, we actually make sure that that's the case in the process of, of making the ingredients that go into the end product. So, um, for example, MCT oil, we only use triple steam distilled from coconuts, whereas a lot use rapeseed in the process. We don't. It was a lot harder for us to find um, find that product to, to create. But we go to that length um, before we all actually launch product. This episode is brought to you by The Growth Strategy Programme, the only online programme for the founders of scaling consumer packaged goods brands that helps you set your business up for the next phase of serious growth. To find out when the next cohort starts, go to fionafitzconsulting.com, then click online courses and register your interest today. So two things strike me. The first is something I'm always banging on about on this, but also in the program and when I'm working with companies is the importance of having a really great, strong, positive, proactive relationship with your co-manufacturer. And if you don't have one of those, either develop it or find a co-manufacturer who's willing to have it with you, right? Because would you have been able to develop all the SKUs and the top quality products you have developed if the co-manufacturer you had didn't have the attitude and the mindset that they have. I mean, it's so important, isn't it? Supply chain is massively key. Otherwise, you're not going to get any scale. The relationship's always going to be strained. So that is that is something that we always pride ourselves on, is having great relationships with every supply chain partner through from the logistics, free PL to our manufacturing partners. So that's something for brands out there to, to really place emphasis on for sure. I think people focus on marketing and selling products, but forget about the operations and supply chain. And that's more my side of things at Hunter and Gather. So yeah, it's super important and something we're very passionate about. The other thing that comes to mind is the price of your products. So I'm imagining when you're talking to me about, you know, we want liquid egg yolk from one source in Cornwall. Surely this drives the price of your product cost up enormously. And as a result of that, you're going to have to charge more for your products. But people, obviously, because you're going to be hitting the 5.5 million, people are obviously willing to pay for this, right? And there's this myth in the food industry and a fear amongst all of us in premium challenger brands that, oh God, my product's going to be too expensive. If it's too expensive, no one will buy it. But in certain circumstances, they will. So why are they buying your products? Yeah, quite a simple and a statement that resonates with or goes around in my head all the time is, don't ask why food is so expensive. Ask why ultra-processed food is is so cheap essentially so essentially it's the integrity of the ingredients we we our margins are no stronger than other players in the food space like they're in line we've got a very sensible business um but consumers understand the integrity of the ingredients the uh, the transparency so for instance on that egg point it's actually quite interesting to note that the liquid egg yolk 
on a cost per unit basis isn't actually any more isn't any more expensive. It's just logistically more challenging. But for instance, avocado oil compared to sunflower rapeseed oil is 10 to 15 times more expensive. So that's what drives that RRP up. But consumers are happy to pay for it because they understand the the, the negative health outcomes associated with things like rapeseed and sunflower oil. So what we're basically saying is that there are consumers out there that if you answer their need around clean eating and health and real food in the way that you define it, they are willing to pay for it. You mentioned a product that's on sale in one of the major retailers, one of your products that's really expensive, but it's one of the best sellers in the category, isn't it? Will you tell us again what that product is and how it performs versus competitors? Because this is really interesting. Yeah, so we launched with an avocado oil mayo jar, um, a medium-sized jar, which was the 5.99 RRP, and that had over 12 avocados. So there's a value piece with that. But we have actually launched with avocado from the success of our avocado. So we, we was with top three of the category in avocado for our um, classic avocado mayo and from the success of that we've launched a family size jar which is huge it has over 33 avocados per jar and um that retails at around 15 pounds 15 to 16 pounds um per jar so from people saying wow you're gonna sell a jar of mayo for 5.99 actually the need is there people are buying this for their families and they just they just won't choose other options so it works for them um and the value piece of actually 33 avocados and the, the health um aspect around that a lot of people can marry the two can I put a question to you then? Because I'm thinking in my head about this idea. Well, the fact that consumers make their decisions or shoppers make their decisions in a frame. They never make their decisions with one brand in front of them. It's always, will I buy that or that? Or if I buy that, then I won't be able to buy that. And if the frame is normal mayonnaise, then $5.99 is really expensive. But if the frame isn't normal mayonnaise, but the frame is I'm on a keto diet or I've got IBS and I eat anything with a particular seed oil in it and I get a massive flare up and I can't leave the house. Or I spend 35 quid on collagen powders for my smoothies. If that's the frame, then 5.99 doesn't seem very expensive, does it? So I'm thinking on the hop here, but actually the fact that you're hunter and gather and the fact that you have all this clean eating and the fact that your roots come from this kind of place of putting real food into your body and it appeals to the keto people and the people with intolerances. Is the frame just a totally different frame from the rest of the national brands? And that's why you can charge more. I think so. And, and just to yeah, put a fine point on that, we're not charging more because we're saying, hey, like our products are, we're going to charge. I shouldn't have said charging more. As soon as I said it, as soon as it came out, I don't mean charge more. I should say, is that why the market is there to buy these products? Because actually, it's like compare it to the bag of collagen on my countertop at 35 quid rather than compare it to the Hellman's at 199. Exactly. I think it comes back to a point where people are starting to question why is why is food so cheap? And that uh, actually the, the real cost of food is kind of what hunter and gatherer are, are selling out, for instance. Or if you know people want to go and buy a pasture for life grass-fed steak for instance the the cost of that being 25 pounds a kilo or 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 20 pounds a kilo is is far greater than mass produced industrial scale beef for instance so i think people are waking up to that and asking those questions and i think when people's health starts to deteriorate and they start seeking 
answers and they come across a body of evidence and a community of people that are experiencing like radical health and essentially <laughs> are achieving what, what should be everyone's birthright to like optimal health. Once they start achieving that, they start realizing, oh, like that isn't serving me. So this is, this is now serving me. It's like an awakening. Yeah. And I think it's a step change. I think the marketing rules that the processed food industry have used for the last, you know, 40 to 50 years probably don't apply in their, in their entirety to this kind of consumer behavior. Yeah, that's a really good point. And actually, I was thinking when you were talking about the egg yolks, I was thinking about, does that not really annoy you guys then when you have a major national food brand, international food brand with an egg on the front of it saying made with real eggs or real egg yolk? And I'm not saying they have powdered egg yolk, but I'm sure lots of them do. Does it not really bother you that these big manufacturers come out with all sorts of things and it's not the whole truth? It is truthful, but it's only a slice of the truth. I think it's worrying and that's why we do a lot to help educate people because if you if if you don't know what the ingredients are on the pack then you definitely aren't just going to be able to guess what's the processing aid and if you're having um if you're really focusing on your health for many different reasons you might be undergoing treatment or you want to follow a certain protocol you might not be aware of this, that it's a powdered egg and there's these other chemicals within that. And I think they they should be declared somewhere, um, whether it's yeah. a processing aid or not. Unfortunately, I think there's so much nuance and like innate wisdom that us as human beings have lost because we always seek simple messages. And I think like marketing, for instance, as I touched upon for the past 50 years has kind of has reduced that innate wisdom to ask questions and we just rely upon marketing departments. And I talk about how we've lost generational wisdom. We used to listen to our ancestors, to our grandmothers, to our grandparents, but we don't anymore. We pretty much rely on businesses to tell us what we should be doing. And for us, that's quite concerning, even though we operate within an industry that relies upon marketing. So it causes this kind of dissonance. One of the things that really bothers me in that area is the idea that people are moving to plant-based eating, not just for the planet and mainly for the planet, but also secondly for their health. And actually, I've got friends who are vegetarian and or vegan, and a lot of the food that they take is incredibly processed, has got huge ingredient decks, plant-based meats that are made of, I don't know, wheat. And I'm wondering, how is that wheat being made textured into you know, and it bleeds and all the rest of it. There's all sorts of processing aids that goes into that stuff, isn't there? Where do you guys sit on vegan? Because originally when I saw your brand a couple of years ago, I assumed you were a vegan brand, but you're not. No. <laughs> Simply put, no. 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 Um, so yeah, a lot of people think avocado, that means, oh, must be, must be vegan. Um, and I'm not sure, not yeah. sure why, but um, no. So we have products that come from animals such as our organ supplements, which are heart, liver, blend of the two and kidney. And then we have collagen, which comes from cattle, or we have a marine option as well. We're all about regenerative agriculture and utilizing if you're going to utilize animal products make sure that you are eating nose to cow how can you make sure that we're getting the most out of that animal and that that animal has lived the best life it can in terms of for the environment 
through pasture for life, as Jeff mentioned, with regards to this. Even stage. just grazing cattle. I mean, there's so much misinformation, and this is a topic that's near and dear to my heart because Veganuary, for instance, when we're recording this podcast now in, in January, it's an unbelievable, it's an it's an epic marketing campaign. And the processed food industry has really jumped on it and it's become the golden goose for the processed food industry. I mean, I was checking out some um, meat alternative burgers earlier and they work out like 18 pounds a kilo. That's how much it works out. Whereas you can buy some very good beef and it works out at 10 pounds per kilo. So you can put together 18 ingredients, call that a plant-based burger, and it's probably got unbelievable margins. So it's almost like this is the new dawn for the processed food industry. And and that's that's genuinely how I how I personally feel about it. And it's with we're, we're blurring the lines between what is marketing and what is actually good for yourself, good for the planet, good for the animals. The grocer had a survey and they published a data from a thousand people. And it and in fact, I think 37% of people try veganuary because they believe it's the best thing for their health. It's not, unfortunately. And I can expand on why we believe it's not, but we feel people's good intentions are being manipulated essentially for, for gain. For commercial gain. Within industry, yeah. And it, it really does sadden us. But what about the planet, though? The big stat that we're all given all the time is that moving to a plant-based diet is the single most important thing we can all do to help the planet. So you guys have got animal-based products in your product ranges, but you're a very progressive brand about real food. How do you marry those two things? Yeah, for sure. So you can, I always like to dig into the data and understand the source of information. So for instance, in the UK of the greenhouse gases, animal agriculture contributes 4% of that. And that's without taking into the fact that good grasslands actually sequester carbon. So that that net is actually less than 4%. And it's part of a biogenic cycle. There are very few inputs that go into animal agriculture. However, if you look at plant-based, for instance, to have monocrop fields or to have fields full of wheat, pea, all sorts of different um, ingredients that go into plant-based alternatives, or sorry, plant-based alternatives, um, they require significant inputs. The, the microdiversity of the soil, for instance, is massively disrupted. It's not part of harmony with, with nature, essentially. Yeah, yeah. A harmonious system. Well, I mean, I'm in no position to be debating the stats because I'm on a very steep learning curve with all of that myself. And you seem to know an awful lot more about it. But what is regenerative agriculture? Regenerative agriculture is a way of farming um, that enables the, for there to be harmony within the soil, within the animals. Um, a lot of farms here in the UK actually farm crop as well that the residue from those crops are then fed to the cattle, for instance, or to the livestock. So it's not it's operating as a harmonious system rather than isolating things and planting a tilling tilling the soil and, and just putting one crop into into that field, for instance. Yeah, and, and removing all of the goodness from the soil, right? So one of the interesting products I saw in your range on your website was this Icelandic lamb liver. I mean, do you make sure that that Icelandic lamb comes from regenerative farms or farms using regenerative agriculture practice? Yeah, so these are these are very special, actually, these organ supplements. So um, Iceland, not many people know, have really strong regulations around their Icelandic lamb. It's kind of like a, 
a hero product of Iceland is their is their lamb and the quality of it. So they're a historic breed. They haven't been changed since crossbred. Yeah, yeah cross, a thousand years. Ro, is it Roman times? Uh, Vikings. Vikings. Yeah. That's it. So it's it's been a long, long time. They're hardy, hardy Icelandic lamb, and they actually live uh, wild roaming on the mountains. Um, so land that isn't suitable for crops, for example. They free roam, they eat the wild herbs, they eat the grasslands, and they actually have a stipulation, no um, genetically modified feeds, no antibiotics are used within the lamb itself. It's why we chose to use um, Icelandic lamb organs. And because from the meat industry, because they're so they're prized as for their meat, the offal and the organs are almost a waste product in one sense, because for a lot of our palates, organ meats are, again, generational lost wisdom. Our grandparents would have loved them, but not so much today. I struggle eating kidneys, for example, but they're really beneficial to me for a genetic snip that I have. So with histamine intolerance. So for me, being able to have that quality within a capsule that's completely sugar free, it's completely natural, it's freeze dried and I don't have to actually have the taste or the cooking. How do you know you have the genetic snip? Did you do a DNA thingy? Yeah, yeah. So they're really um, useful. Actually, around 50% of the population have a similar genetic SNP to what I have, and it can impact your histamine levels. So if you get runny eyes, headaches all the time, maybe your nose is running or itchy, um, you too could have this, this genetic SNP. I'm really interested in this. Did you test for a whole load of things or did you just do for that SNP because of your celiac disease? Yeah, so um, we actually just did um, one of the generic DNA testing that you can do online. Um, we knew how to read uh, our results, but you can get, um, there are specific people that you can go to for your own personalised thing if, if, you, if you're not aware. Um, but it was a particular genetic SNP that we wanted to look into just from family history. And um, yeah, my mum gets streaming eyes sometimes and yeah we worked that out and um yeah it was really useful to understand and how eating things like organ meats are really important so you guys are kind of hacking your health really through food back in the day when was it like about eight years ago in the whole maybe even 10 years ago the whole bulletproof coffee the coffee with the butter and that was kind of the start of it wasn't it when people started getting into this and now it's become much more mainstream, hasn't it? So you're 70% in, just to kind of swing back to the business structure, 70% online and 30% in retail, right? Are you pushing growth in that business in the coming two or three years? Is that going to be a major source of growth for you guys? Yeah, so um, we see the, the whole pie getting bigger, gluten-free pie, of course. Um, grain-free. Grain-free and gluten-free and sugar-free pie um, getting bigger. <laughs> so we see that each section of the business will continue to grow. So we actually believe that the split will probably stay similar for the next year or two at least. Um, we would love to be working in grocery and we do have aims for that as well um, because we want to be on the shelf where we can um, we can be right there. People can see us and they can question the convention. And for like, yeah, this year has been all about investing in people. So we've now got a head of sales. We've got, we've got a sales department, finally, essentially, um, operations team, finance. So yeah, this, this past financial year has really been kind of building that infrastructure to enable that 
know, future scale to come or that, that scale in the next few years. Absolutely. And my understanding is, Amy, you had quite an experience in FMCG before you started this brand, didn't you? That's got to stand to you, right? Tell everybody what you were doing before you came to found Hunter and Gather. Yeah, no, definitely. So I was actually more in the pet industry. So it was quite interesting because of our own personal journey, looking at human food nutrition for ourselves, I was going through a very similar journey um, in the corporate world. So I was working at one of the big guys at Mars um, Pet Food, um, who likes a pedigree, etc. quite highly processed food for, for animals. And it didn't sit that well with me uh, ethically. And I moved over to a startup, um, Lily's Kitchen, which is now one of the fastest growing natural pet food brands in the UK and Europe. Um, and they are grain-free pet food. So as you can see, the two sides of personal and, and my career were joining. And I learned a lot about um, a tribe mentality business where premium natural products had a place and people were questioning it in the pet food category, um, which gave us confidence that actually there could be people out there for the food categories in the human human industry more so. Um, so that did help in terms of giving us a bit of um, bit of knowledge and also a bit confidence. of, yes, you can do it, confidence, yeah. Well, that's amazing. I think what you guys have done is absolutely fabulous. And I wonder how many people out there, and I don't mean listening to this show because I'd say they're probably first movers when it comes to new products, but just in the general population, I think I probably was a bit too scared to try your products because I thought, oh no, they're for the cool CrossFitters or <laughs> they're for the keto people. And I'm not sure I really understand what keto is. And then you sent me a box. And like I said to you, and I genuinely mean this, I have fallen in love with mayonnaise again. I'd given up mayonnaise years ago. I used to love like a good tomato sandwich with mayonnaise as a kid, the mixture of those two flavors. And I've stopped because it was just processed and a bit plasticky tasting and your mayonnaise tastes like the mayonnaise my mum made a couple of times when she could be bothered. It's absolutely wonderful. And as well, I've never eaten ketchup for my entire life and I've tried quite a few, haven't been a fan. I love your ketchup. It's absolutely gorgeous. So thank you so much for such a generous box of goodies. I'm still wondering whether I can be brave enough to put the beef collagen in something. I'm thinking maybe soup because I know it doesn't have much of a flavour at all compared to other beef collagens. I do appreciate that. But there's a psychological thing for me. How do you get over that? How do you get over the psychological element of some of these things? Like, for example, if you were to say to me, try the kidney capsules, I would have a bit of a psychological barrier to that because I'd be afraid I'd burp it back up. <laughs> There's no burping kidney back up, that's for sure. But you know the way you do with the fish oils, you can have the fish oil burps and that's just hideous, you know, in a meeting and all of a sudden have a mouthful of fish fish oil burp and it's like <laughs> just <laughs> vile. Yeah, no, I couldn't cope with that on kidney. Like I say, I'm not the not the best when it comes to the flavour of offal. But um, no, it's, it's a good point. But uh, interestingly, I know we spoke about vegan, vegetarian. We actually have a lot of people that are transitioning back into eating meat that are struggling psychologically, but know that they want the essential amino acids um, that something like the collagen powder provides. And they actually see it as a stepping stone. So it's interesting to hear it from your perspective, because we actually have a lot of people use them as a stepping stone. They see it more of a supplement versus re-eating a steak or a piece of meat, for example. Um, so I think that 
being a supplement a lot of people um do find it okay um i think once you've tried it for the first time and there isn't a strong flavor then it's then it's very easy to to add in I think the other thing for me is that now that I have met you guys and tried your products is that I know now for me, I've made sense of what you, what the brand stands for. I know what types of products you'll offer me if I see the brand anywhere. It's basically, this might be the wrong expression, but it's how I make sense of it. It's like clean eating. It's like ultra clean eating. There must be hundreds of thousands of people like me in the UK who once they knew that you stand for, you're not like just the keto people. You're just the great ultra clean food people. I think it's like, you know, going to be really, really successful in that top end of the mass market. That's what super excites us is what we've achieved today on the limited resource. Um, So if we adjust a few things, get that further investment. Yeah, the sky is a limit, which I know is a cliche, but it really is. Well, look, it's been really lovely to meet you both, hang out with you both a little bit over the last two weeks and learn loads about the products and how you make them. I'm certainly a lot more aware of what's in my fridge and what might be inside those jars since I met you guys. And I am a real fan of the brand and the products. And I will be, once I've finished my stash, I will be buying more. So thank you so much. I highly recommend anyone who likes real mayonnaise, buy the avocado oil mayonnaise. It is to die for. Also your avocado oil. I've been using that in cooking. It's really lovely. The kids like it too. It doesn't have a weird flavor. I feel like I'm giving my kids something good, particularly my littlists who don't eat many veg. It feels like I'm giving them some good oils. And I will try the collagen and let you know how I get on. But thank you so much both for coming on the show and sharing all of that learning and information and general goodness with us. Yeah. Thanks everyone. It's been an absolute honor. It has. Thank you, Fiona. Thanks a million, Amy. Thanks a million, Jeff. 